Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. August 31st, 1997, the day Princess Diana died, was a day that brought shock and an unprecedented outpouring of grief to most of the world, as Princess Diana was well known for her kind and gentle ways and her efforts to help the poor and displaced. Unlike many of our stories, which take place in the years before many of you listeners were born, this story and event took place roughly 25 years ago and is still a fresh scar to many. Many of you no doubt watched the funeral, which reportedly was seen by 2.5 billion people worldwide. In 2007, 10 years after Diana's tragic death, a number of polls were conducted in the UK and the results showed clearly that a huge number of Britons believed that Diana was murdered. Despite a number of official inquiries and a formal inquest which brought many questions to light and tried to answer them in a forthright manner. To many, however, her death remains an unsolved mystery, and the search continues for answers. A side note, I had lost my father the day before Diana's death, and I and my immediate family were mourning his loss when the news of Diana's tragic death struck the next day, August 31st, 1997, reaching the world, sending it into shock, causing millions of people to mourn her loss, as well as that of those who were with her at the time of her death. I recall carrying the private hope that my father would be there on the other side to welcome her and let her know she was safe in the arms of a loving God. Foolish conceit, I know, but my hope nonetheless, and that alone brings me close enough to this story to want to tell it. Diana's death has been attributed by officialdom to the fact that her chauffeur, Henry Paul, was legally intoxicated when he lost control of the Mercedes-Benz W140 S-Class upon entering the Pointe des Alma tunnel in Paris and slammed into a concrete support pier at 65 miles per hour, killing himself, Diana's partner Dodi Fayed, seriously injuring their bodyguard, and critically injuring Diana, who would succumb to internal injuries a few hours later. Whether or not the drinks caused Henri to swerve into a concrete piling, or the fact that another car had bumped him causing the swerve, is a matter of intense debate to this day. It looks to many very much like a well-orchestrated assassination. Diana's bodyguard, Trevor Reese jones having been seated in the front passenger seat, was seriously injured, but survived, with aftershock amnesia, apparently remembering nothing of the event. Some members of the media, and definitely the French authorities at the time, claimed that the erratic behavior of the camera-wielding paparazzi following the car, as reported by the BBC, had contributed to the crash. In 1999, a French investigation which did not open its files to the public, and which has since come under intense scrutiny from independent investigators, 
found that Henri Paul was solely responsible for the crash and for Diana's death. Many believe that verdict was one made out of convenience. An intense national mourning took place immediately upon the announcement of Diana's death, and she became, almost overnight, a superstar martyr to the modern world, as well as a source of anger for others who believed that Diana's death could simply be written off as Henri Paul's mistake. There had to be more, and, as it turned out, there was more, much more, and that is the story we're bringing today. As mounds of information and tips and rumors and theories began to build, investigators began to pour over details which continue to emerge. Many amateur and professional crime solvers, legal teams, private investigators, and conspiracy theorists went to work trying to separate fact from fiction, and as they did so, mountains of questions arose. I have reviewed books, documentaries, interviews, and articles in preparation for this story, and I can tell you from the start that some of the facts that were turned up will surprise you and leave you seriously considering whether there was much more to Diana's death than first meets the eye. Not only does it look like important details were held back, but there was bungling and time delay in getting Diana to a hospital after the crash in Paris. Then there was a last-minute switch of medical teams as they worked with her in the ER. At least two of the men in the car were known to have been associated with Britain's MI6. Another car did bump the Mercedes as it sped into the Dealma Tunnel, causing the bends to swerve first right, then left, into a concrete support column. That car was eventually found. That driver was known to have provided photo services for MI6. That driver was also later discovered dead in his burned car, his head having been severed from his body. More on that as we go forward. The Mercedes-Benz, according to a Daily Mail article published in 2017, had been stolen just three months earlier, resulting in a warning that that car was not to be driven over 37 miles per hour. It would not hold up, the report apparently said. It had been in a crash before and rolled over several times and had been re-engineered. By whom, we do not know. Who got the warning, we do not know. The answer as to who was involved in making sure this car was provided for Henri Paul that night is not shown in any reports. These are just some of the eyebrow-raising details which have emerged. There were also two key witnesses near the entrance of the tunnel who heard a large implosion as the Mercedes entered the tunnel. Neither saw any paparazzi chasing the limo. Both heard a strange explosion, which one called an implosion, followed by the whining sound of an engine racing just prior to the crash, sounding like the car had been shifted into neutral with the engine still at full power. Their testimonies were ignored because they didn't fit the narrative that the French police were trying to build, which originally was death by paparazzi. That changed just a few hours later to death due to Henri Paul's drunk driving, a much easier answer to arrive at, but not necessarily a correct one. And if that's not enough to grab your attention, there is the fact that an understandably paranoid Diana wrote a letter stating that there were evil forces present within the royal establishment who wanted her out of the way. She handed the letter to her butler, Paul Burrell, in October of 1996, less than one year before her death, and asked him only to reveal it if something was to happen to her. He followed her instructions. He revealed the letter after her death. The letter has been authenticated, and no one has questioned it. A portion of it read, This particular phase in my life is the most dangerous. My husband is planning an accident in my car, brake failure and serious head injury, in order to make the path clear for him to marry. Amazingly, 
she had predicted her own death in a planned auto accident, and many think she had a reason to be worried. The core evidence for the official verdicts claiming that Henri Paul's driving was at fault, the blood test carried out on driver Henri Paul, has come under heavy criticism from several quarters, with a number of claims saying that the sample was either accidentally or deliberately switched with that of a suicide victim who had been brought into the hospital that same night. While acknowledging that some confusion had indeed crept in, the French authorities have insisted that later checks made against Paul's DNA and eye fluid confirmed a high level of alcohol in his system that night, up to two and a half times the legal limit by U.S. standards, over three times the legal limit by French standards. On the other hand, one of the blood samples apparently showed levels of carbon monoxide so high that it would have, should have, rendered Paul unfit for duty that night, yet nobody, including Hotel Video, described or showed him as being unwell or behaving oddly that night, which caused the blood sample or the sample's analysis into question. One video showed Henri in the lobby of the Paris Ritz squatting to tighten his shoelaces, then standing up with no wobbling or off-balance motion, which would have been impossible if he were suffering from the high carbon monoxide levels his blood test showed, or from drunkenness. The CCTV footage, as well as most of the witnesses who saw him that night, saw no evidences of intoxication. His bar bill showed just two drinks at the Ritz Hotel before leaving with Diana. However, he had left the hotel for two hours earlier that evening. And his apartment was searched for liquor, and the results of that search have been highly questioned as well. Diana and her boyfriend, Egyptian film producer Dodi Fayed, the son of businessman Mohammed Al-Fayed, had left Sardinia that day, Saturday, August 30th, stopping at the Paris Ritz while en route to London, having spent the preceding nine days together on Fayed's yacht on the French and Italian Riviera. Some questions you may have already answered yourself. What did the royal family think of the breakup of Diana and Prince Charles? What did they think of her jet-setting with Dodi Fayed? What did they think of the fact that if they married, Dodi Fayed, an Egyptian Muslim, would be the stepfather of her two sons, one of whom was destined to be king? And what did they think of her having his baby? I'll leave that up to you to decide. But to say that there wasn't any anti-Muslim sentiment in England's royal family, or in their intelligence department, or in English royalty, would be a stretch, considering the tension that Muslim terrorists were creating around the world in 1997, just four years prior to 9-11. In Paris alone, in 1995 and 1996, multiple bombings of the Paris metro were carried out by an Islamist militant group. Diana, who is very unhappy with her marriage and her well-scrutinized, heavily regimented life within the royal family, had divorced Charles in August of 1996, one year after a BBC interview in which he famously admitted, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. They had separated in 1992. Indeed, her husband's obvious affection for Camilla Parker Bowles was an embarrassment, which turned ugly when Diana discovered he had ordered a personalized silver bracelet for Camilla. During her separation, Diana found a new lover, British-Pakistani heart surgeon Haznat Khan, whom she described as the love of her life. That relationship ended in 1997, followed within a month with her relationship with Dodi Fayed, the son of billionaire Mohammed Fayed, owner of Harrods in London, as well as the Paris Ritz, where she and Dodi were staying the night of her fatal car ride. Henri Paul was the deputy head of security at the Ritz, and had been instructed to drive the hired black 1996 Mercedes, in order to elude the paparazzi. 
a decoy Mercedes leapt the Ritz first from the main entrance on Place Vendôme, attracting a throng of photographers and public. Diana and Fayed then departed from the hotel's rear entrance on Rue Cambon at around 20 minutes after midnight on the 31st, heading for the apartment located in Rue Arsène Hussay. They did this to avoid the nearly 30 photographers waiting in front of the hotel. Diana and Fayed were the rear passengers. Trevor Reese Jones, a member of the Fayed family's personal protection team, was in the right front passenger seat. After leaving the Rue Cambon and crossing the Place de la Concorde, they drove along Cour de Reine at Cour Albert, the embankment road along the right bank of the River Seine, into the Place de Alma underpass. This was not the quickest way to reach their destination, and the choice of this route has been questioned by many. Did Henri choose it? Or did another member of the group request it? Or was it pre-planned, with orders being handed down to Henri? As the Mercedes approached the Pointe d'Alma tunnel, a tunnel authority camera mounted at the top of the tunnel opening recorded a flash picture showing clearly the faces of driver Henri Paul and security guard Trevor Reese Jones. You can see the back of Diana's head as she's positioned apparently with her back to Trevor Jones's seat, her hair touching the back of his seat and visible between the two front seats. A very unusual position, which would not leave her sitting on her car seat, but rather on the floor behind the driver's seat. This position hasn't been discussed in any of the information I have read, other than one journalist mentioning that possibly she was trying to hide from photographers. The tunnel camera's purpose was to monitor speeders, and it registered at the equivalent of 65 miles per hour on the picture. There were two witnesses close by when the Mercedes sped into the tunnel. We'll discuss who they were and what they saw and heard as we go forward. There is also no mention of there being a flash picture taken of the white Fiat and its driver, which soon bumped the Mercedes, leaving its paint on the side of the limo for analysts to find later, and sending it into a column. It seems as though everyone just missed asking for that picture, and the French government wasn't making that, or a lot of other information, available. A French photographer named Patrick Chauvel interviewed a member of the French police who later told him that they were under orders to keep quiet about anything regarding the crash or their investigation. I'll mention now that for some strange reason, the 13 CCTV cameras mounted within the tunnel were not functioning at the time of the accident. I have since read that they shut them down at 11 p.m. that night. At 12.23 a.m., Paul lost control of the vehicle soon after entering the Point d'Alma tunnel. The Mercedes struck the right-hand wall and then swerved to the left of the two-lane carriageway before it collided head-on with the 13th pillar that supported the roof. The car was traveling at an estimated speed of 65 miles per hour, over twice the tunnel's 31-mile-per-hour speed limit. It then spun and hit the stone wall of the tunnel backwards, finally coming to a stop. The impact caused substantial damage, particularly to the front half of the vehicle, as there was, and still is, no guardrail between the pillars to prevent this. Witnesses arriving shortly after the crash reported smoke. With the four occupants still in the wrecked car, the photographers, who had now caught up to the Mercedes, reached the scene. Some rushed to help, tried to open the doors and help the victims, while some of them just stood and took pictures and video. French police arrived on scene around 10 minutes after the crash at 12.30 a.m., and an ambulance was on site five minutes later, according to witnesses. France Info Radio reported that one photographer was beaten by witnesses who were horrified by the scene. Five of the photographers were arrested directly. Later, two others were detained, and about 20 rolls of film were taken directly from them. 
Police also impounded their vehicles afterwards. Firefighters also arrived at the scene to help remove the victims. Still conscious after the crash, Rees Jones had suffered multiple serious facial injuries and a head contusion. The front occupant's airbags had functioned normally, a factor which most likely saved his life. Diana was also still conscious. Critically injured, Diana was reported to have murmured repeatedly, Oh my God! And after the photographers and other helpers were pushed away by police, Leave me alone. In June of 2007, the Channel 4 documentary, Diana, the Witnesses in the Tunnel, claimed that the first person to touch Diana was off-duty physician Frederick Mallet, who had chanced upon the scene. Mallet reported that Diana had no visible injuries, but was in shock. After being removed from the car at 1 o'clock a.m., she went into cardiac arrest and, following external cardiopulmonary resuscitation, her heart started beating again. Diana was moved to the SAMU ambulance at 1.18 a.m. and left the scene at 1.41 a.m., arriving at the Petier-Salpetrier Hospital at 2.06 a.m. Fayette had been sitting in the left rear passenger seat and was pronounced dead shortly afterwards. Henri Paul was also pronounced dead on removal from the wreckage. Both were taken directly to the Institut Medico-Legal, the Paris mortuary, not to a hospital. Paul was later found to have a blood alcohol level of 1.7 grams per liter of blood, which is about 3.5 times the legal limit in France, as mentioned. Despite attempts to save her life, Diana's injuries were too extensive and resuscitation attempts, including internal cardiac massage, were unsuccessful. Her heart had been displaced to the right side of the chest, which tore the pulmonary vein and the pericardium. Diana died at the hospital at approximately 4 a.m., Anesthesiologist Bruce Rial announced her death at 6 a.m. at a news conference held at the hospital. None of the car's occupants, including Diana, were reported to have been wearing seat belts. A later investigation suggested that hers may not have been operative. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. So many questions have arisen from here. One of those questions slash stories involves Lord Stevens' involvement. He had led the 2006 Operation Paget inquest into Diana's death. He had met with Henri's parents and inferred that Henri Paul was not drunk. Yet just five weeks later, his own report stated the exact opposite, with no reason given for his turnaround. Later, he said he was trying to be considerate to the bereaved parents by mincing his words. Paul's parents maintained that there is no evidence that there had been any excessive drinking. In addition to that, the fact that Paul had just qualified as a pilot and had no history of heavy drinking, and that the Fayed family had employed him for the past 11 years without a single disciplinary mark on his record, does suggest that driving under the influence would have been highly out of character for him. Many questions have been raised about Paul's affiliations. He had known links to French security, albeit minor ones. It was also guessed that he had contacts with Britain's MI6 which is well known for assassination attempts on notables such as Gaddafi and others. Some, like that of Gaddafi's, failed, while others succeeded. This has led to fringe conspiracy theorists suggesting that Henri Paul was a Manchurian candidate and had been subjected to suicidal mind control programming. It's not totally impossible when you consider that the American CIA was involved in exactly that with their Operation MK Ultra which took unknowing subjects and exposed them to hallucinogenic drugs for over a decade, combining human experimentation with attempts at mind control 
to create easily manageable, often suicidal innocents who could carry out their plots. When the CIA was finally caught and testified in Congress, the incredible story came to light. Admittedly, that was an American abuse of power, not a British one. But could Britain's MI6 be capable of something similar? Most people in the UK don't doubt it for a moment. Tales of a blinding white flash which occurred just as the Mercedes entered the tunnel have persisted, as well as reports that the Mercedes was bumped by a white Fiat Uno, which, paint samples ended up proving, did clip the limo, or the limo clipped it, have fueled speculation that the crash was engineered. It has been suggested that the flash of light may have come from the Fiat or from another car, blinding Henri Paul, causing him to lose control. Running cars off roads and into fatal crashes is known as a long-standing tactic for assassinations. It's very likely, though, that the flash was the speed camera mounted over the tunnel entrance. We know it was operative because we have the picture. There was a huge search for the white Fiat after paint samples implicated a white Fiat Uno in the crash. French police said they investigated 4,000 of those in the Paris area alone and never found a trace. It was Mohamed Al-Fayed, Dodi's father, he and his investigators insisted that the Fiat belonged to a French photographer named Jean-Paul James Andenson. His investigators thought it was strange that with all the modern-day conveniences that police have of tracking down vehicles, the French police, who said they investigated over 4,000 white Fiat Unos, never managed to identify the mystery car, despite the fact that it had left some of its paint on the Mercedes after bumping it. One week after the crash, two witnesses, Georges and Sabine Dozon, came forward and said they'd seen a white Fiat Uno shortly after the crash. They claimed there was a large dog wearing a red bandana in the back seat and that the driver had been driving erratically. The French police began their search for that car, a search which was unsuccessful. Soon after, forensic analysis identified side-body paint stains on the Mercedes as being caused by a white Fiat Uno, and the search intensified, as did the anger and intensity of Mohamed Fayed, who was becoming more and more convinced that his son and future daughter-in-law were victims of an assassination, and he felt that MI6 was behind it all. In November, French police arrested Thon Levan, a part-time security guard who owned a white Fiat Uno. His vehicle had been repainted and had had a bumper replaced shortly after the August 31st crash. A chemical analysis showed that the original paint was compatible with the white traces shown on the Mercedes. Levan had an alibi, though. He was working at the time, and the alibi stuck. He was later ruled out as a suspect. Then the police found Andenson's car, which had been sold. According to reports, the left rear taillight had been recently replaced. The original paint of this car chemically matched the paint that the mystery car had left on the Mercedes. However, Andenson's car had apparently been repainted prior to the August crash and showed no evidence it had been involved in a collision. That all could have been engineered. In 2000, Andenson's body was discovered on his property in a burned-out BMW. His head had been severed from his body. He had a hole in his skull. Alain Durand, the state prosecutor for the area, admitted that the circumstances of Andenson's death were very peculiar. He was to say, As soon as I learned the identity of James Andenson, I told the investigating magistrate to do the maximum, because it was an affair that could have links to Diana. Andenson's death was later ruled as a suicide because he had left a virtual suicide note. How he removed his own head has never been made clear, 
"'but losing your head in a fire is not typical, according to pathologists.' Independent investigators later revealed that Anderson was a photographer who often did piecework for MI6. He was known to get photographs of important people shortly before their unexpected deaths. He had bragged to friends four months after the crash that he was there at the crash scene and took photos of the car's occupants. He also told them that he was too cunning to get arrested with the rest of the paparazzi and escaped arrest. When investigators, having been tipped off by people Anderson had bragged to, found him, he insisted that he hadn't driven the Fiat for two years prior to Diana's crash. He had sold it, and that he had nothing to do with it. And he produced receipts, showing that on the night of the crash, he had been in Ligniere, 170 miles south of Paris. He didn't bother to tell investigators that he had managed to accompany Diana and Dodie on Fayette's yacht and take pictures there. Who was he working for? How did he get on? We don't know. Al-Fayed believed without a doubt that Andenson was planning to go public with his involvement in the Secret Service plot to kill Diana and Dodie when his charred body was discovered in the forest near his home in South France in May of 2000. French investigator Jean-Michael Lazan told the London hearing that he arrived while the vehicle was still ablaze and saw the corpse alight at the steering wheel with two holes in his left temple. The pathologist later said that the holes were caused by the intense heat of the fire after he set fire to himself. The head had apparently just rolled off during the blaze. Strangely enough, Andenson was never even mentioned in the official inquests that took place later concerning Diana's death. When emergency workers arrived at the wreckage, they discovered that Diana and Mr. Reese Jones were alive, albeit with serious injuries. They were both taken to Petier Salpetrier Hospital, and Princess Diana, who arrived for emergency treatment first, would be pronounced dead within hours. Although the hospital was only three miles away, it took one hour and ten minutes to get there. Unlike the UK, France's emergency ambulance teams at the time were instructed to save the life of the badly injured passengers while at the scene and while en route to the hospital. They had to stop twice to administer support due to Diana's blood pressure, dropping to near-death levels. One story which has come out but has received little attention involves the change of doctors at the hospital. One of the French surgeons at the hospital where Diana was received privately claimed that expectations for her survival were apparently good when she was brought in. However, when a British medical team was brought in and the local staff was relieved and ordered from the room, Diana was unexpectedly pronounced dead shortly after their arrival. You can imagine the speculation that took place when that was discovered, especially with the arriving staff ordering the local physicians to leave the room. The surgeon who revealed the story died in a freak car accident shortly afterward, and his wife soon disappeared as well. And you wonder why people have conspiracy doubts? In the mid-2000s, expert witnesses told a Metropolitan Police investigation that Mr. Reese Jones had a very limited recall of what happened immediately before and after the crash, and this was unlikely to ever change. Dr. Maurice Lipsedge, a psychiatrist, had said, Trevor Reese jones remembers getting into the Mercedes in the Rue Cambon and the car driving off. He remembers nothing after that. A few snatches might come back to him, but his memories are not at all reliable, because even for him, it is impossible to tell if these are genuine memories or reconstructions of events from information he might have gotten later, dreams or imagination. The conclusion that Mr. Reese jones had suffered memory loss was challenged by Mohammed Al-Fayed, Dodi's father. The elder Afayed had claimed the bodyguard 
knew exactly what happened before the Mercedes entered the tunnel, as well as details the security services were eager to suppress. Although Mr. Reese Jones was eager to return to work, he resigned from his job with Mr. Al-Fayed in April 1998 on the advice of his solicitors. The bodyguard later claimed that he had felt pressured by the business magnate to remember what had happened. In 2000, Mr. Reese Jones published his memoirs entitled The Bodyguard's Story, Diana, The Crash, and The Sole Survivor. Mr. Al-Fayed further alleged that this book was a tissue of lies and had actually been written by the security services in an attempt to support the British authorities' conclusion that Diana and Doty had died in a simple traffic accident. Operation Paget, the police inquiry set up in 2004 to investigate conspiracy theories surrounding Diana's death, concluded there was no evidence that Mr. Reese Jones remembered the crash, nor was there evidence that the security services were involved in the production of his book. But it seems as if they were just repeating answers that they had predetermined from the start. Operation Paget opened up more doubts and inquiries and helped add critical details and substance as well. Mr. Alfayette had also claimed that the bodyguard had been given a senior job in United Nations security as an inducement to ensure his continued silence. And that was another claim dismissed by Operation Paget, which had waited nearly ten years after the crash to get rolling. Mr. Reese Jones has given very few interviews in the years since the crash, and he keeps out of the public eye. According to The Sun, he now lives in Shropshire after holding several roles abroad, with friends telling the newspaper he had really done well for himself by working in Texas as a security director for the American oil company Halliburton. Under French law, an inquest is required in cases of sudden or unexplained death. A French judicial investigation had already been carried out, but the 6,000-page report was never published and it was kept out of the public's view. On January 6, 2004, six years after Diana's death, an inquest into the crash opened in London held by Michael Burgess, the coroner of the Queen's household. The coroner asked the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir John Stevens, to make inquiries in response to speculation that the deaths were not an accident. The police investigation reported its findings in Operation Paget in December of 2006. In January of that year, Lord Stevens did explain in an interview on GMTV that the case is substantially more complex than once thought. The Sunday Times wrote on January 29th of that year that agents of the British Secret Service were cross-examined because they were in Paris at the time of the crash. It was suggested in many journals that these agents might have exchanged the blood test from Henri Paul with another blood sample, although no evidence for this was ever forthcoming. The inquests into the deaths of Diana and Fayed opened on January 8, 2007. You can't help but wonder how many trails had gone cold in all that time. On July 27, 2007, Lord Justice Scott Baker, following representations for the lawyers of the interested parties, issued a list of issues likely to be raised at the inquest. We'll continue with those key issues, many of which were raised by Doty's father, as well as many more stories, including the testimony of two key witnesses to the crash, friends of Diana who testified to her sharing worries that something dreadful had been planned for her, the belief of many that there was a failed plot to kill Camilla Parker Bowles in a car crash just months before Diana's death, and much more, all in Part 2, Diana's Death, In Search of the Truth, coming next Sunday night to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We appreciate reviews, especially from you Apple listeners, Reviews help people find us, and we appreciate your sharing our show with others. 
We also encourage you to try out the other very successful shows in the 1001 Stories Network. Those include 1001 Stories for the Road, where we're currently sharing my reading of The Mark of Zorro, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where we offer new short stories every Sunday night, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where you currently find My Reading of the Scarlet Pimpernel, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, which is our fastest-growing show, 1001 Ghost Stories, which combines classic ghost stories with some old radio classics, definitely on the spooky side, and 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we house all of our interview shows. We also greatly appreciate our Patreon supporters, who support our show by pledging a couple dollars every month to make sure we stay on our way to 2001 Stories. You're invited to help us out, too, by going to 1001patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. That's patreon.com, forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Supporting our show as a patron is a wonderful thing to do. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.